But first, I'm afraid Laura Tingle is on the sick list. So, Crikey's Bernard Keane will be talking us through what's happening and also what's not happening in Canberra with Parliament in recess on account of the Queen's death. Bernard, I know I can just feel how much you've been enjoying this coverage of the pomp, the wonder in London. <laughs> Well, I, I confess I haven't been a big fan of the coverage since Her Majesty passed away, but um, I did watch the the funeral this evening and the pomp and ceremony associated with that with um, uh, a great deal of interest, I confess. I'm a, I'm a student of British history, um, and I think for those, for people who aren't uh, so familiar with British history, it really must be a case of it, it, the, 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 there's that old expression about the past being a, another country and they do things differently there. I think in moments like these really do demonstrate the extent to which Britain is a very, very different country to Australia. And I think uh, what we saw this evening in terms of uh, the rituals, the, uh, the religiosity of this, this was the death not merely of a monarch but of the head of the Church of England, it was a very Anglican service. Um, I really think, and and, and the and the, uh, the the order of proceedings, the the processions, the role of uh, of um, various orders of the British aristocracy really did serve to demonstrate that Britain is a fundamentally different country to Australia, which has its own stratification, has its own hierarchy, of course, but nothing like the uh, the rigidity. Uh, and the historical rigidity of um, of the United Kingdom that was on display this evening. Bernard, I wonder, it, it's not specifically, though, Britain. I suppose my sense was that this wasn't about Britain, this is about the crown and this this pomp, this ceremony, the costumes, the music, etc. It's about projecting, it's theatre, about projecting the power of the crown, isn't it? I, absolutely. I mean, I think it's 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 crucial to maintaining the status of the royal family and of the established order that uh, you have this immensely sort of ritualised process of transitioning from one one monarch to the other. I mean, a lot of these things, well, you know, if, if you're, a, you know, if you've studied British history, as some of us have, um, you, you're acutely aware of the fact that the processes, the titles, the political structure um, uh, you know, the, the names of things are, are, are the same now as they were in the 16th and 17th century in a way that you know, obviously we can't grasp in Australia because we've, you know, what 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 links with our past that we have here, we've turned our backs on. We've, we, we, we've sort of dissociated ourselves with the, the Indigenous history that, um, uh, that um, uh, you know, we've, we've dispossessed this continent of. But in the case of... Um, uh, of the UK, it's uh, you know it, we we really are talking about rituals that have served the the you know the monarchy and the establishment for centuries in terms of of projecting power. I mean, it was I mean, recently I've been reading the the, the diaries of, of Chips Channon, the mid twentieth century diarist and conservative MP who lived through things like uh, the you know the death of George V and his funeral. Uh, and obviously the abdication, the death of Duke, the, the Duke of Kent during the Second World War, and to read his accounts of the you know the memorial services and the great ceremonial of that period 
you know, is is very similar to you know reading about the the you know reading the diaries and and the memoirs of you know someone like Saint Simon from from you know early eighteenth century France. I mean, we, we're talking about rituals that haven't changed and uh, snobberies and social stratification that that hasn't changed for a very long time and is 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 deeply embedded in a way that I think most Australians really. I suspect, don't fully grasp. I mean, you're describing it as a very kind of foreign experience for most Australians observing it from here, but it's also been an opportunity, hasn't it, for Australia to strongly demonstrate its alignment with the UK, even though this might not be a ceremony that we'd be capable of or necessarily necessarily want. But what does it say about how we as Australians still view our place in the world, our connectedness to that tradition? Well, I think there's a there's there's kind of a couple of competing narratives here. I mean, the, the official narrative, and one that's that's been um, advanced by the government, for example, and the, and the political class, apart from uh, you know minor parties like the Greens, and, and certainly you know by the national broadcast, the ABC as well, and much of the media is is a, is if you like a kind of a loyalist one. It's 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 a narrative that has embraced, um, you know, the 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 concept of of the Queen as the Queen of Australia. Her passing is the death of our sovereign, every bit, every bit as much as as the passing of um, the British sovereign. And that's you know that's one that's that's sort of been strongly borne out as a kind of a you know official view of proceedings. And of course. For a lot of Australians, for a lot of Republican Australians, maybe for a lot of Australians who really just aren't that, that you know that interested in uh, the monarchy, I think there's been another narrative at play, which is um, you know just how relevant is this to all of us? You know, and obviously verging on you know, you know amongst a lot of Republicans, much more negative and critical view um, of proceedings. Um, but to see, you know, Anthony Albanese was there along with Justin Trudeau and, and other representatives, just Jacinda Ardern and other representatives of the Commonwealth being described as, um, I think, in the, in the words of, of the BBC commentator, as um, leaders from, from Her Majesty's realms, um, which I think really did sort of, you know, put a bit of it perspective jarred, on. It didn't it? You, you sat up yeah, at that Well, point. it did. It really sort of put us in our place, didn't it? Can I ask what what's going on in Parliament with our Parliament not sitting for 15 days, even though the Prime Minister has said there'll be some make-up days? What are the implications for the government getting, for example, their ICAC legislation through by the end of the year? Does it matter? Well, is, is it better to give it time and get it right? Or, or are we have we hit pause on some pretty critical pieces of legislation? Well, timing is actually pretty important for that bill because it's going to go to a Senate inquiry, you know, no matter what. I mean, I, I suspect the government will refer it itself to a, a Senate inquiry. Oftentimes, legislation goes to the Senate if the government doesn't have a majority, which, of course, is is most of the time, then it will get referred uh, to a committee. So, I suspect the government will just, you know, automatically refer its, its federal ICAC bill um, to a committee. That process is going to take time. It should take time. I mean, we want this bill to be examined Pretty comprehensively, we want to know that it's going to be, you know, a proper ICAC, not the kind of half-baked 
well, you know, quarter baked, if I can, you know, keep abusing the metaphor, you know, idea of a federal ICAC that, that Scott Morrison and Christian Porter put forward. We want to know that this is going to be one that is suited to the job. It's going to, you know, not be restricted in terms of what it can investigate, not be restricted in terms of how it can investigate things, not be restricted in terms of what it can recommend. And those questions need to be sort of, you know, do need to be teased out, I think. Just, um, just on the process of examination. Just on that quickly, a bit of a follow. I mean, the Greens are pushing to expand the jurisdiction of the ICAC to include third parties. What are their chances of getting that included? Do we know? Look, I think that's very problematic because you know there are. You know, if you look at state ICACs, they deal with third parties to the extent that they deal with the abuse of public office, and that's entirely appropriate. Um, but I think having a, a, a more expansive approach and that the more ex- the more expansive you make an anti-corruption body but either in terms of its remit of conduct or in terms of who it can actually investigate then you know, the more you risk um, you know making it too broad and too vague to actually be useful I mean it's it, interesting comparison is the Australian National Audit Office the Australian National Audit Office can actually p- pursue third parties that uh, end up spending government money. So, potentially that brings, you know, gives it the power to examine not just private companies, but even state and local governments. It tends not to use that power because I think, you know, the the Auditor General is aware that once you start down that track, then you really start diluting and diffusing the power that comes from being able to sort of concentrate resources on particular issues. So, I think there is a case for actually keeping it somewhat confined, but not in terms of the type of conduct that can be pursued and not in terms of certainly of, you know, the extent to which both uh, elected and unelected officials can have their conduct scrutinised, you know, no matter what the circumstances. Bernard, we've only got a couple of more minutes. I'm just wondering, Friday marked one year since the announcement of the AUKUS deal. Of course, let's talk about delays. But we still haven't chosen what sort of submarine we want yet. How, How should one reflect upon this anniversary, do you think? Um, I, I think we might uh, end up reflecting on it as one of the most, you know, most uh, disturbing moments in Australian, sort of in major Australian policy uh, in recent decades. There, there is every chance that you know, the, the consequences of that decision leave us with, you know, a very big legacy problems in terms of our defence, in terms of the, you know, the, the, the gap that it leaves in our. Uh, overall defences. Uh, uh, until recently, we could have said it might, you know, leave us with a significant problem in our relations with the major Indo-Pacific uh, European country, which is France. Uh, I think one of the you know, the best things that the Albanese government has done is actually restore the relationship with uh, with the Macron uh, government and with France to a you know to a reasonably positive state. So uh, we, we've done well there, but. We are left with this persistent issue that there really does like look as if there is going to be a major gap in our defences, and it's not clear, despite what Richard Miles keeps on saying, it is really not clear that there are any simple solutions to the fact that we're not going to get these submarines until the 2040s, if at all, and, of course, who's going to build them? We don't even know who's going to build them yet. So all the questions that were were on display in that um, that 
press conference that Scott Morrison had with Joe Biden yes, back, and Boris Johnson back in the last day. year. Back in the day. Bernard <laughs> yeah, Keen. all those questions remain unanswered. <laughs> exactly. Listen, thank you so much. Uh, there's Bernard Keane, the political editor of Crikey. G'day, potties. As you know, we love a philosophical discussion here at Early Nell, but for a different take on the big ethical issues in modern life, try the minefield with Waleed Ali and Scott Stevens. They may even mention Hannah Arendt. Find it on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs>